You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Bass Ferruccio Furlanetto, stage director Julia Pevsner, and Lyric Opera of Chicago music director Sir Andrew Davis are backstage at Lyric. I think he was an, uh, a very important character for, for Russian history, and uh, I like to see him as a positive figure after all. One moment they are all hailing him and please, please come and be our Tsar and we love you and we love you even more and we'll always love you. And then five minutes later, they want him dead and they don't want him anymore and they, you know, they are not happy. And this, you know, this kind of thing, all of a sudden, like in the last 10 years, I started to just really connect a little bit more to, like, you know, history going in circles kind of thing. This version has, has an intensity that never lets up. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of Lyric Opera of Chicago's Discovery Series session for Modest Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov. For those of you not familiar with the Discovery Series, it is a series of panel discussions with singers, conductors, stage directors, and other creative talent from Lyric season. Lyric typically presents one session per opera, and they often take place a few days prior to the opening of the production. The Discovery Series is open to the public and is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. For tickets and additional information, visit lyricopera.org. All of the Discovery Series sessions are presented as part of this podcast series. And now let's hand things over to Lyric Opera dramaturg and broadcaster Roger Pines, who is your moderator for this Discovery session for Boris Godunov. Good evening. Um, I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago. I'm delighted to welcome all of you to our third Discovery Series session for the season, devoted to Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov which Lyric is presenting for the first time since the 1994-95 season. I want to remind you, first of all, to turn off your cell phones. Anything else that beeps, please. I'm really thrilled that you will have three varied but equally insightful uh, perspectives on this piece, thanks to our leading man, our conductor, and our director. I'll introduce them to you in alphabetical order, beginning with Lyric Opera's internationally celebrated music director, who's conducting his first production of Boris Godunov. Sir Andrew Davis, of course, needs no introduction to any of you. I just want to update you on his current season. At Lyric, he's also conducting Ariadne Afnaxos and the Magic Flute. In addition to opening the 2012 Edinburgh Festival, this season also involves engagements at the Besançon Festival, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, Toronto Symphony Orchestra, Royal Scottish National Orchestra, 
Rotterdam Philharmonic, London's Philharmonia Orchestra, and the Bamberg Symphony Orchestra. And as for operatic activity, <laughs> it, will, it will also include the Metz Don Giovanni, Canadian Opera Company's Buccini Zemlinski Double Bill, Santa Fe Opera's Arabella, and the Bergen Festival's Damnation of Faust. He'll also record for various orchestras with uh, Chandos Records. Okay. Our Zarbaris, Italian-based Fermucio Furlanetto, is making his lyric opera debut. He is internationally regarded as one of the greatest singing actors of our time, incomparable today in such signature roles as Mozart's Don Giovanni and Leporello, Rossini's Don Basilio, every leading bass role of Verdi, Massenet's Don Quixote, and Thomas Beckett in Pizzetti's Murder in the Cathedral. His King Philip in Don Carlo was recently released on DVD from Covent Garden, and he triumphed in that role last season at the Metropolitan Opera. In a major change of pace, he recently added South Pacific to his repertoire for a concert version at the Vienna Volksoper. He's long been a favorite artist with every major Italian company, including La Scala, as well as the Vienna Staatsoper, Covent Garden, and the Salzburg Festival. Highlights of his current season include the Mets' Faust and Hernani, Madrid's Don Quixote, Palermo's Baris Kadanov, and San Francisco's Attila. The Russian-born director Julia Pevsner is also making her lyric debut. Later this season, she'll return to the Israeli opera in her adopted hometown of Tel Aviv to direct Lady Macbeth of Metzensk and Rigoletto. She'll also direct a rarity, Donizetti's Maria Padilla, at Opera Boston, where she previously directed Shostakovich's The Nose in its New England premiere. Boris Kadanov has previously brought her to San Francisco Opera and Houston Grand Opera. Among her other major productions have been The Queen of Spades, which marked her international debut at the Dallas Opera, Evgenia Negin and La Boheme at Virginia Opera, Fidelio at Krakow's Holocaust Memorial, and productions for the Prague National Theater and Greek National Opera. She's remounted productions by Francesca Zambello in Paris, London, Moscow, Naples, and Geneva. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Sir Andrew Davis, Ferruccio Furlanetto, and Julia Pevsner. Okay, we haven't done this opera in quite a while. So here is the action in brief to refresh all of your memories. In 1598, the Muscovites clamor for the regent Boris Kadanov to accept the throne of Russia, which he has hitherto refused. He eventually relents, and he appears in Moscow's Cathedral Square, where, on the way to his coronation, he prays to God to make him a better ruler. In 1603, the aged monk Piman, who is writing his Chronicle of Russian History, tells the novice Grigori the tale of the murder of the heir to the throne, young Dmitri. Realizing that Dmitri would be his own age had he lived, Grigori decides to reinvent himself as pretender to the throne. At an inn near the Lithuanian border, he just barely manages to avoid being captured by policemen. Meanwhile, in Boris's apartments in the Kremlin, he gives comfort to his unhappy daughter Xenia and encourages the studies of his son Fyodor. Alone with his guilt-ridden thoughts, however, it is clear that he is pursued by visions of the bloody Dmitri. His fears increase markedly when the boyar Shwiski announces that a pretender has arisen in Lithuania, gathering an army. Alone once again, Boris hallucinates and prays for God's mercy. Gathered before St. Basil's Cathedral, the people reveal that the pretender has gathered an army that is advancing. Baris's guilt finally brings him to the point of collapse. Before the boyars in the Kremlin, he bids his son Fyodor a final farewell and dies. Those are just the events of this opera, that there is so much more going on than that. Um, so 
uh, we're going to have a great many audience members who will not have seen Boris Godunov in live performance ever uh, after we've only done it in four seasons out of 57. So I think it's important, panel, to uh, important for those uh, who are unfamiliar with it that we give just a couple of sentences each on summing up this piece's strengths, its greatest strengths, whether musical or dramatic. What sets it apart from the rest of the repertoire? Who's, who's starting, me? Go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, and we'll talk about this probably in more detail later. The, it, it's, it's a very um, severe kind of uh, story, you know, full of Russian gloom, thing that they do so well. Um, uh, uh, and it's a very specific sound world, um, which is quite different to anything else that was being written at the time. And, of course, this was one of the things that stood in the way of its acceptance to begin with, um, because Mussorgsky was kind of dismissed as incompetent, both in terms of orchestration and um, harmony, even. You know, he wouldn't have passed his exams at the conservatory. Um, and, and if, well, we'll talk about this later, but it is, for, for me, uh, from the musical point of view, it's this marvellously... Um, sort of single-minded quality that the music has. There, there aren't too many jokes, but there are, there are a couple in the in scene. But, um, so, it, and, it, and it has this tremendous strength uh, and intensity of feeling that is maintained all the way through. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, um, our composer was not a very happy guy. Uh, and uh, although... I read somewhere that he actually died. Um, when he died, um, they found a textbook on orchestration under his pillow. He's never, he's never obviously felt confident enough that, you know, that he knew that he was a big master of orchestration. And probably he was not following the rules all the time. But um, uh, I must say that, again, I'm sure that I'm probably getting ahead of ourselves, but that's why I actually love this version and its sound world, because it is so special and so um, dark and weird in a way. And sometimes it's, um, um, it's not even beautiful. It's some kind of very strange way of this um, beauty, not romantic, mysterious, very, very dark, but very embracing in a way. And um, I think the score is just so wonderful and so um, deep and so, um, well, since it's just so thoroughly, I don't know, um, from the top of the piece through the very end, it's always intense which I don't think actually happens in later versions. And by the way, the other reason the piece was not accepted in the very first um, time when it was written in 1869 was because there was no love story. It was uh, just you know a bunch of men talking politics all the time, and uh, so the you know the people in the theater said, well you know we need a love story. So he wrote the Polish Act later on for the 
piece to be presented. And when I, I personally listen to the Polish act, I feel like it does not belong. That like it did not really come from the bottom of his heart, like the rest of the music, which did. So um, anyway. Ferruccio, what, what, what is the greatest strength of the piece for you? Well, you know, I have been lucky enough to do the three most frequent and uh, famous versions. And uh, this, by far, is the most uh, intense, rough, if you want, and the real Mussorgsky, that's for sure. The Lam, the longer one that he, now is very much in fashion, is uh, uh, as beautiful, if you want, there is a, in the monologue in the Kremlin there are some phrases that I'm really missing in this one but this is just purely for my for my role and uh, this version the, the very first one has another another big advantage for for my character that is ending with the death of Boris and this makes uh, really this is the real coronation theme scene for me because at the end of it uh, the atmosphere is so intense, it's so special that uh, you can find it only in this version. Because in the other two, after, immediately after starts the chromi uh, scene, and uh, if you want, all the tension that has been built goes down. So I am very much attached and, uh, to this version, also because it was the first one that I learned, not did, but I, because it was a very funny story. I was hired to do the first Boris in Rome in 99, and uh, they told me in the contract that it would have been this version. And then something happened that the conductor left and 10 days before the beginning of the rehearsals, they changed the version. In Italy? In Italy? In no. Italy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to learn the second one, the, the, the LAM, which is at least a good 40-50% more in text and music in 10 days. While I learned the, 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 the very first one in four months, slowly, and then... <laughs> so it's... It's really... <laughs> Life and opera. It was quite an adventure. Wow. So well, since we're talking about the version then, um, Andrew, how did we conclude that this version was the way to go in this current revival? How did we decide that this is what we would use? Well, I mean, a lot of this has been said already, but, uh, I mean, the other thing that we haven't really talked about is Rimsky-Korsakov's version, which was, for a very long time, the only version that was ever performed because, you know, people... Took the, accepted the, 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 the proposition that Rimsky had improved it. Um, what he did was make it sound like Rimsky-Korsakov, which is, on its own terms, is, is marvellous, and it's a brilliant score, wonderfully orchestrated, because Rimsky-Korsakov was the first great orchestrator in the sense of, of using all the colours that were available, and then, you know, you get on to, to Ravel and, and uh, you know, in the 20th century, but... Um, um, uh, it's and it's it's a remarkable version. But as I say, for years that was the only thing you could hear. And then people discovered that in fact what Mussorgsky had written, although it it was had its awkward moments, moments of awkwardness. But the awkwardness in the writing, in a way, is part of its strength. I think 
there's a kind of um, uh, uh, severity about it um, as, uh, that, that really is, is quite unique. And I think the, and then I, we've already, I totally agree with Yulia about the Polish act, which has some good music in it, but, but it's, it's, you feel it's... Pasted on. Pasted on, yes, exactly. Uh, and so this version has, has an intensity that never lets up. And even in this scene in the inn, which, as I say, does have a couple of jokes in it, or, you know, it has, has its moments of levity, and it has the only sort of aria in the piece for Varlam, the, the drunk monk, as I like to call him. Um, uh, even that it has, uh, the, you know, the, the, ha- has a great strength, too. So it's, it's this feeling of going all the way through. And we were, actually, we were talking amongst ourselves at some point about maybe we should have done the whole thing straight through without a, an interval. But that's, I mean, it's, it's almost, what is it, two, two hours and 20 minutes of music, something like two and a half hours. So, you know, well, you know, you can do it with Rheingold. Why can't you do it? <laughs> but but we, uh, we did actually change the place where we were going to put the, the intermission as well. Um, and I think a very good decision it was because, we, you know, there are seven scenes and we were going to do four of them and then three. But now we're doing five and two. Um, because for one, one reason, that, that if we'd done what we'd originally intended, you would have come to the interval and intermission and wondered why the piece is called Boris Godunov, because uh, he doesn't... Until the fifth, you know, until the, the fifth scene has, has the big, um, wonderful monologue um, in it, and, and it's a very much more powerful place to, to make the, the pause. Ferruccio, how does your role change when you go from the original version? Do, do you, is the music, you said that 40%, there's 40% more yes, that you have course, to learn? Yes, of course, there is, it's much longer. The, in the Kremlin, the, the scene is much longer. Also, the famous clock scene is quite different. There are many, many rather big differences between the two. It, Only the finale is, is the same. But the Kremlin, it's, it's very different and much longer. Now, Julia, you've done um, every, you've directed every version that, that there is at this point? More or less, yes. <laughs> this is also a piece that you sort of grew up with, right? Because you grew up in St. Petersburg. Yes, I did. And the Mariinsky is where the piece was premiered. Did you see it when you were like five years old or something? Yeah, well, maybe six or seven. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember what your initial response to it was? Uh, I don't think you really want to know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, my mom used to take me to ballet a lot, and I loved the ballet, and I was studying piano in the music school, and um, I think going to Boris Godunov at the age of seven, it's just, um, it's a little bit too overwhelming. So I think, I'd, I'm not sure what I thought. I mean, I can't really remember. What I do know, though, that when I came back to it in my school days, when we were studying it, that was, that was a big discovery. I think that's when I really, really discovered this piece maybe in, like in, the high, in high school, because then it was something that I could understand, I think, much more. When I already was a little bit, I knew a little bit more about music and about history, and I think that, you know, when you're seven and it's just too loud and too many people and, you know, too, it's just too dark. 
but um, ever since I've lo- I've really I'll, I've loved the piece. I, I love Mussorgsky. I love Kovanchi more. I must say, but I think these are, these two operas are really the best of what he wrote and. Um, um, also, I think that uh, a lot of um, something that I actually didn't think at all about when I heard the opera in high school. You know, we were studying it as musicians, and uh, I never thought of its actual connection to the modern world, you know. I was totally detached, and like I thought of the Russian history, it was fascinating. But I didn't think at all that actually if you look at this story and so many aspects of this story, you find out that um, although it all happened in the end of uh, 15th century, uh, 16th century, um, it almost could have happened now. Because the, many of the political, you know, political aspects of the story um, are just, you know, the, it's it's basically this relationship of uh, uh, ruler versus people, and you know, one minute, one moment they are all hailing him and please, please come and be our tsar and we love you and we love you even more and we'll always love you. And then five minutes later, they want him dead and they don't want him anymore and they, you know, they are not happy. And this, you know, this kind of thing, all of a sudden, like in the last 10 years, I started to just really connect a little bit more to, like, you know, history going in circles kind of thing. And also, by the way, something that we do not see in this version, but uh, we do, we would have seen in the later versions, the last scenes, the chromis scenes, which does have its disadvantages because, yes, the attention goes somewhere else. But, I mean, the great thing about it is that, yes, Boris is dead, but in The Pretender comes over and he takes over. Now, in real life, he actually, yes, he did come over, and he was there for a year, and then Shuisky took over. And then they killed Shuisky, and the second pretender came over. <laughs> and then he married Marina, by the way. This Marina girl was really something. <laughs> and then um, the third pretender came. Now, it's true. I know it sounds like a, like a good fairy tale, but it is true. I mean, it's a proven fact. The third pretender came, and they believed him, and they coronated him, and then it was over. Then the Romanovs came. But I mean, it's isn't it like absolutely amazing? And uh, you kind of I think then if we look at the history a little bit more than throughout the centuries, throughout the 18th and 19th and 20th century, and you kind of feel that it doesn't even go in spiral, it totally goes in circles. And like every time a pretender comes and takes over, and the whole story starts over again. So, well, this is what we do actually do miss not having the chromosome, but um, we can imagine. (laughs) I think Anna Russell should have done a a Boris Godunov version, don't you? Ferruccio, you performed a great deal of repertoire before you got around to this role. Am am I right in thinking that you must have had a lot of offers to do it before you said yes? 
Not really. Not, <laughs> not really, because in that period, just before my first Boris, I was ending, let's say, a long period of mostly Mozart. Good, more than 20 years of Mozart. And in, during this period, I was so much in love with Figaro, Giovanni, or Leporello, that I really didn't think about about uh, heavy repertoire. When this period, due to logical reasons, because all the Mozart's characters are related to a specific age of the singer, when that age came and I went gradually into the heavier repertoire, then I started to think about it and immediately I had this chance of, of doing it. But until then, I always felt a kind of reverential respect and fear because I felt that it wasn't the time. Then the time, the time came. One of your great achievements, your unique achievement, is that you are the first Italian to have sung the role at the Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg. What was that experience like? Well, that was amazing, not only for the, for the performances itself, because, I mean, it was during the White Night Festival, and in that period, you have a good 50% of the audience that is international, and the other may be Russian, so it's not a real full Russian. But the most touching uh, fact that happened in that occasion was we had a kind of, kind of dress rehearsal, and at the end of the opera, the orchestra and the chorus started really to shout and to applaud coming from their heart. And that was a great, great achievement, I tell you, because until then, okay, I mean, will they accept an Italian coming here and sing their own repertoire? And it was marvelous, really marvelous. In our first conversation about this opera quite a few months ago, you told me about a book that you read at the suggestion of your friend, the Russian conductor Semyon Bichkov, that helped you tremendously. Um, can you give us some more details on that? Well, you know, I got in touch in these days with Semyon <laughs> regarding this book, and unfortunately said that it must be in his country place in France, and he doesn't have any recall of it. <laughs> I remember that it was basically a book about Peter the Great, but to get to Peter the Great, they went through the history that came before and after. And just to give you a, a specific idea of what was the atmosphere in those years and in Russia, other bodies. And uh, it was extremely important, I must say, because I really could, as an Italian, as somebody belonging to another world, if you want. I could gradually get into this specific atmosphere and try at least to, to, to feel what I should have felt in, in being Boris Godunov. And it was, that was the purpose why, uh, why Semyon gave me this book and, I, and it was uh, great, great help. Andrew, just as Ferruccio's first Baris was such a huge occasion for him, your first Baris clearly is going to be momentous for you too. I mean, this is one, I, I understand this to be one of your major operatic amb ambitions to conduct this piece. What took so long? <laughs> well, 
It's it's rather like um, Ferruccio, you know, we asking him why, and he said he was doing a lot of Mozart and, and other things, and I, you know, for a long time, I, of course, I, I, I did conduct in, in some of the major opera houses, but the focus of my operatic work for many years was Glyndebourne, where I first went in 1973, um, uh, and I did clearly there a lot of Mozart, I did Strauss, I did Janacek, I did other things, um, Pelleas Melisande, uh, some interesting repertoire, but um, when I when I came to Chicago uh, eleven years ago, I'd never conducted a Puccini opera, and I'd never conducted a complete Wagner opera. So this was one of the reasons, you know. They, then they asked me to come here. They said, "The Ring." <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> and and. Um, you know, that's, uh, so it's been, it's been a fantastic uh, journey for me, actually, in, in many ways. And, and Boris uh, was always a piece that I adored, um, and we finally got round to it. Um, we don't do as much Russian repertoire as some of us... Well, you know, I, uh, it, of course, my opening production as music director here, not my first conducting here, was, but in 2000 was... was um, Down, Queen of Spades, another great Russian opera. Um, So uh, it's just a question of, you know, you plan seasons, and because we only do eight operas a year, it's taken us this long to get to Boris, but um, I'm delighted. Uh, And for me, it's it's always fascinating to... Any big piece like this that you come to for the first time, um, I always... You know, clearly one, one prepares oneself. One, one does a lot of homework. Um, and, uh, but during the whole process of rehearsing a piece, I always find that my perceptions of the piece, and particularly, how should I put it, the, 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 cons- the, the, the way one part of a piece relates to the others and forms a whole, which is, the, I mean, that's one of... What a conductor does is, um, you know, <laughs> often so asked, well, but what do you do, actually? <laughs> and, uh, you know, what use are you? Um, and, of course, you have to keep everything together, which in, in opera is sometimes very difficult. If, particularly if you have directors who put people at the other end of as far away they can, which is not the case with Julia, <laughs> I have to say. Um, um, so... Uh, it's always a voyage of discovery for me, and even today, uh, for instance, we had a stage orchestra rehearsal. We have another one tomorrow in the dress rehearsal on uh, Friday. Even today, I, the second time we did something, I did, I did a, a particular section at a slightly different tempo, which I like better. <laughs> so I shall do it from now on. But I, it's, uh, um, it's, it's always a voyage of discovery, and... and, and well, I, actually, everything one does is a voyage of discovery, I think, because if you start thinking, oh, I know this, I know how this goes, then you might as well, then you have to quit. Because um, that's what's so wonderful, is you're always discovering. I, I mean, I just... Uh, sorry, this is slightly going off tangent, but I, I conducted the Eroica Symphony about uh, a month ago in Toronto with my old orchestra. And I hadn't done it for about... Oh, it must have been eight or nine years the last time I, did, I conducted the piece. And somehow 
I think I found something new in it, uh, and it was it was incredibly um, exciting and moving for me to think. Well, this is a piece I've been conducting. I probably conducted it first when I was twenty one, and now in my advanced age, I've I've seemed to have discovered some new dimension to it. That's what is so so great about what what you know we do for a, for a living, and because we're all you know we're looking for refinement and, and new um, depths or I don't know and that's isn't isn't that right I mean that's what that what makes doing what we do so fascinating I think absolutely no and also uh, it's not my first time of doing Boris but I've done this opera quite a few times before but it does I think with the especially with such a great uh, piece of art it does feel every time that it's the first time because every time there is something you you discover in the relationships in the you know uh, of the characters in the relationships of the music and the drama in the actual actual overall impact even of certain scenes or even of the whole piece maybe if you asked me 10 years ago what the piece was about i would probably have come up with a different answer um, than today or maybe in 10 years it will change as well I don't know it's always it's always um, and this is I agree with Sir Andrew and I'm sure that Ferruccio agrees with me too that this is the only way to go if you think you know in advance then um, then it's too bad it's your funeral basically <laughs> so this is why opera lives I think because we continuously change and we filter we are the filter between a composer, a masterpiece, and an audience. And we con continuously change. And so we are filtering everything through different emotions, sensibility, moment of life. And this is the secret why opera still lives. I want to make sure that we get to aspects of the title role, which is such a complex role and such a challenge musically, dramatically. So, Fucha, let me start by asking you, in what ways, if any, is Boris an admirable human being? Well, historically, Boris is considered as one of the greatest tsars. Under his reign, many reforms have been done, and uh, he had some very good years where, where Russia was prospering. Then, unfortunately, went through different times, and in these cases, when something goes wrong, it's always the fault of the government. And uh, and re together with this, there is also this problem of the Tsarevich that nobody will ever know if he killed it or not. But this remorse starts to grow, maybe because he's believing to a point, believing the story, even if he didn't. I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to, to really understand if he did it or not. I like to think that uh, at the end of it, he's out of convincing himself that he didn't do it. But his, his mind is weak, 
and of all this blah 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 behind the wings and around behind him is is getting to you to his heart and is is provoking the madness and the death therefore it's uh, i think he was an uh, a very important character for for russian history and uh, i like to see him as a positive figure after all and he certainly and i believe in it he, he certainly loves his children more than oh. anything in the world that's also historically proved. I mean, he was extremely in love with uh, with the wife first, and uh, and with his kids. I mean, to the point that, and you can tell and you can feel it during the opera because the way he's, he's talking to the daughter, then to the boy, and at the very end when he's trying to get all his strength to resist and to give the last advices to this poor kid who has to inherit this uh, tremendous burden of, of the rain. I mean, this is the proof, and you can really feel how much he was uh, crazily in love with these two kids. You have the most extraordinary entrance because there's so much going on in the coronation scene in the first half of it. It's so busy and so active and so it gets so sort of overwhelming and then suddenly everything comes to a halt when Boris comes on the stage and you have this very intimate moment almost to yourself. What, what is most important to you to communicate well, this in, is in probably, that entrance? This is probably the most difficult uh, scene for one simple reason, because you have two pages to present yourself. And in these two pages, the first part, the first half is a thought. It's something that he's telling himself, it's a kind of prayer to, to God, asking for help to be able to do this, this job. And the second part is to present himself in front of his crowd and, and give him the right impression. Therefore, no weakness, strength, maybe even a violent figure. So in, in two pages and in very few words, you have to give this little card. This is Boris Godunov. And uh, it's, it's quite impressive, quite tough and quite difficult, I would say. Now, on stage with you in that scene is the chorus, and we can't, no discussion of this opera can pass without speaking a bit about the chorus because they're so vital. I mean, they are really the other main character in the opera, it seems to me. So, Andrew, let me start by asking you, how would you characterize their music? Well, the, the, <laughs> there's an enormous different kinds of music for the chorus. Even in the first scene, you've got this marvelous scene at the beginning where, where the crowd is there and, and they're being told they have to go and do a, you know... They've got to go and do a sort of cheerleader thing for, for <laughs> Boris, and they they kind of... And they, they've, they've kind of used to it. They're, they're like the sort of paid um, fans, really. Well, they, they're not paid. They're bullied. They're bullied into... Bullied fans, They're yes. bullied fans. They're, they, they don't really... Um, so you know, it, it's quite difficult to bring this off, actually, because the, 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 the kind of way they have to sing has to suggest the but sort of slightly sincere. phony... Yes, the, the, the <laughs> sincerity is not really in it. And in the same scene, they have to be uh, this sort of these uh, pilgrims who, who are quite... Well, they're, 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 
what what actually think, is their sex? I think these me? guys have been paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the, 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 so they have been in a different way. It's they, like yeah, it's a performance. It's a yeah, yeah. It's a who is stage managing the yeah. whole thing, I guess. And then, of, and then, of course, they're, they're the um, the crowd in the coronation scene where they do work up some real enthusiasm. I have to say, yeah, and, and it's a marvelous, yeah. marvelous, exciting scene. Uh, and then, um, and then my favorite Saint Basil scene. Yes, this is. I think this is just really. This is where I always cry when that chorus comes. The chorus uh, where people are asking for bread. Um, And which, of course, comes just directly after the Holy Fools song, which is actually also something we have to talk about, um, this character, the Holy Fool. And uh, so he's singing this, you know, he's... um, um, it's actually the first time he sings, the first and only time he sings in the operas in this scene. Um, it's a lament for the country, though, isn't it? It is absolutely, yes. It is. I think it's absolutely a symbolic character, um, pr- representing for me at least the soul of Russia, soul of the people. Um, very tormented soul. Very, um, well, I mean, we Russians have to suffer a little bit, don't we? So, and we are good at that, exactly. So, um, here comes the, the Holy Fool, and um, um, he is actually the one who speaks the truth. And this truth cannot be contradicted, because this is what Holy Fool does. Um, so, he sings this very, very sad song. Um, and um, then the kids, um, the bad kids nasty kids, they play games with him and they cheat him, they take his little coin and then he cries Um, and then he's asking Boris for um, Boris to punish these kids and then he's just basically articulating the accusation, he says, why, well please have the murder just as you murdered the little Tsarevich in front of all the people at which point, of course, everybody expects him to be punished, but Boris does not. He says, please pray for me. And um, poor Holy Fool says, no, I can't, because I can't pray for Tsar Herod, uh, which, of course, basically I see in this scene for Mussorgsky meant, yes, Boris did kill the Tsarevich, and, um, as well as for Pushkin, who wrote the play, who read the history of Karamzin, and they did believe sincerely that uh, Boris did kill Tsarevich, although I think that we'll never know that for sure. No. It's, it's... And I think that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be, exactly. But anyway, I, in, in the middle of all this um, conflict between the Tsar and the soul of people who is telling the truth, there is this huge chorus of... Um, the peasants who are, you know, in the winter, in in front of this Saint Basil's, is a chore cathedral. They asking the Tsar for bread, and this moment, 
I don't know. I have. I, I always cry when it happens. Yeah, it's because they're they're finally being themselves. Uh, I mean, they're representing themselves rather than being doing what they're told or Absolutely. reacting to some grand spectacle. This is the the, the kind of the people. The real, yeah, the real pain, yes. the real pain, and the real, um, you know. Uh, yeah, cry of a soul, I should say. And this moment, I think, is for the co- of, of all the chorus scene. Well, scenes at least I love the most. I think that this is where yeah. really it all comes to some kind of occupy Andrew, in terms of the chorus, also you have to deal with off-stage singing a fair amount of time. Do you not? How is uh, what sort of singing is required of them when when they are off-stage? Well, you just have to. <laughs> It's a very practical thing, you know. The bugbear of my life is getting off stage things right. It's <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a torment. But uh, yes, I mean, uh, what is the funk? What 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 is happening dramatically that uh, that that's, that singing is required of them? Well, I mean, well, the piment scene. What do you? Yeah, the uh, well, I think in the piment scene, it's basically the. I should say it's more of a. To be honest, I hope you. Don't mind me saying that it's more like of atmospheric. Yeah. You know, it's giving totally. the atmosphere of the church choral happening of you know happening somewhere. So we kind of have a feeling that we are now in this holy place rather than in some you know somebody's office red square yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, in front of Kremlin. And I think this is wonderfully. It presents a wonderful contrast to the very intense story which is actually going on in that cell, where a young monk is getting this idea that he is actually a pretend. He's, that he is not getting the idea that he he is a Tsarevich. He knows that he is not, but he's getting the idea to cheat on everyone to go to Lithuania and then from there to Poland and come back as Tsarevich and pretend and be good at that. And I actually do strongly believe that his, mons- uh, his uh, mentor, Pimen, sets him off on purpose to do that. You know, that same monk who is writing this history book um, and who believes that Boris is guilty and who wants to punish Boris he sets this young guy off and he tells him the story and he says, you know, this guy would really be of your age and he would be on the throne. Hmm, interesting. So, of course, right away, you know, he gets the idea and he's smart and he's going to do his thing. So this is this. And then in the death scene, though, the, the offstage chorus, I think, means something absolutely different. Well... Yes, um, this is a very uh, stunning effect um, in terms of the use of the forces because we have we have Boris who is kind of getting more and more agitated and 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 uh, and, and the choir singing quite in a quite declamatory way. Backstage, and then the the violins and the violas doing this sort of manic tremolando, which uh, it, this is one of the interesting places that to judge exactly the level at which they should play this is is very important because if they're too loud, then they're going to s- sort of obliterate everything. If they're not loud enough, they're, they're, you take away this element in the in the texture that actually gives it its sort of. Uh, sort of spine tingling quality, I think. 
So, yeah. Speaking of the final scene brings me back to the character of Boris himself. Ferruccio, when you enter in the final scene, you are, at least initially, you're hallucinating and in terrible shape emotionally. Um, how, how far can you go in, in that entrance? I know that just listening on my speaker in my office today, when I heard you say, it's chur, right? What does that, what does that mean? Just go away. The, I was terrified. I mean, and just listening, not even seeing you. So, how how strong can things be in that entrance? Because you have, but there is a, you have a lot more to sing. Everything is magistically written. You just need to feel what you're saying and what you're singing, and everything comes out by itself. It's uh, it's so beautifully written and so dramatically, sensationally written that you really need again I use the word filter you need to live what you're saying what you're singing and everything will be there if all one needs to do is what is what he's given you on the page then how come this role has been so subject to so many performers going wildly off the notes and shouting and ranting, which I know you are not interested in doing. No, but those were different times, different, different fashion. No, it's true. You must also think that, for instance, the time of Shalyaping, they didn't have really productions behind them. Everything was based on them. And so at that time, it was quite a habit to have this extra, <laughs> you know, shouts. Or now we, we are more living in the respect of the composers, and and we try to do only what is written. In Paris's mind, you mentioned uh, briefly before the the farewell to his son, which is part of so much a part of this death mm-hmm. scene. What is most important to him to communicate to his son in those moments? What does he want his son to remember? Well, he, he, he's trying really to, to, to give him some very specific alerts. I mean, be careful with the boyards because they are all a bunch of bastards, basically. <laughs> and be careful with the, with the countries next to us, like Poland, like Lithuania. I mean, he's trying really to give him a final political lesson in a much, much in a hurry, but to prepare him somehow. He's already trying to do that in the scene in the Kremlin when Shuiske comes. He wants, he wants him to stay and to listen and to, understand, to, to start to understand how human being could be built. And uh, and this and the same and even more deeply happens at the end when he is really trying in those few seconds, separating him from death to give him the chance to survive. And the poor Fyodor, you know, will survive only eight months, and then he will end up like the poor Tsarevich before. Him. So uh, th- those were very hard times, I must say, because when. It comes to make all this mess about bodies. Did he do it or he didn't do it? Reading that famous book, I realized that most of his predecessors have been killed. So what? What was the, the new stuff in this? They were they were killed every time and in the same brutal way. 
uh, of course. Well, Ivan, the, Ivan the Terrible. I mean, the, the Tsar, the Tsar beforehand. I mean, Ivan the Terrible, who, yes, he did murder his son, yeah, after so all, I mean, his so own. To, to make such a, a noise about this fact, did he kill it or not? Did he, I mean, it happened all the time, and it will, and it will continue to happen even afterwards. Yeah. Well, it was. I suppose it was a political ace. Basically, it was. No, it was a I good mean, material for, for theater. Yeah, and a good material material for theater. I mean, but I was just you know listening to you and thinking you know I live in Israel. My home is in Tel Aviv, and Ferruccio was saying, uh, yeah. So the lesson to your child, yeah, don't uh, don't trust politicians and don't trust your neighbors, and sounded like some good advice for. All of us, I mean, at least <laughs> back home. Like, I but I mean, it is very true. I mean, he is trying to, he's to trying to, he's trying to teach his son about the world in yeah in in two minutes. And basically, the world is not looking like a very good place. I guess at that very time. So, um, sadly, well, <laughs> Andrew, it's it's hard to imagine what a composer could do to follow those moments of the Boris's final moments of life. So how did Mussorgsky choose to end that final scene musically? What occurs after we, he breathes his last? Well, uh, the moment that always, I, again, gives me chills is, is when we have the sort of reference to the coronation scene with this sort of big bell tolling. It's sort of, we've come full circle. Uh, and... Uh, that, that, to me, is, is the most striking musical image. Uh, and it, it's a kind of sardonic way of kind of referring to the, the rise and, and fall and, uh, of, of, a great, of a great man and a great, and a great mind also, I think. That's, you know, we, we see... In a sense, Boris sort of dis- disintegrate or lose control of. of do, I mean, do you agree with that, Ferruccio? Do you think he loses control? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think he might have been a little bit too good, you know, too good. In a way, I think that being um, sometimes trying to be above all that, you know, I think that he could not have afforded it. And trying to be better, a better man and a better ruler, it really didn't work out because he couldn't stand the the real politicians like um, like Shusky. He was just one man against the the, the too the many people. And the, also, the, I mean, times. he was actually the first really chosen tsar. He was the first tsar Elected. who was not born as a tsar. And I think it's also a huge thing. I mean, for centuries there has always been a dynasty, the Ruriks. And then with Ivan Terrible and this whole situation with his eight wives and, you know, and uh, I mean, it's a long story, too many wives, so the last wife was not accepted by the patriarch, so that's why actually Tsarevich could not have succeeded him, but then they didn't have uh, anyone to inherit, so yes, they said, okay, fine, and then poor Tsarevich was killed, so... Anyway, so there was no one, and then the, yeah, I know, I know, it's... (laughs) Did you follow that? I'm not sure I did. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, and then the bottom line, the the, the only son of of Ivan the Terrible was Fyodor, who was kind of a little bit insane, 
And so he happened to be married to Boris's sister. So that's how Boris actually became a politician. And eventually what happened was when Fyodor died and there was no one to get the throne and the Tsarevich was still too little and then he was dead. So Boris was asked to do the job. For really first chosen Tsar in the, I mean, in, in, in the history of the country. It's a huge thing. And he wouldn't have been chosen if he were not, like, I mean, a great mind and a great personality. And then, obviously, it was, yeah, it's mis- the misfortunes and the guilt and all of the above. So it was six years. Well, Is the, then the food, of, the food for thought that this piece actually leaves our audience with, basically, don't, don't trust anybody. I mean, what is, it to, what is it saying to us about human nature that we can take away with us, do you think? Or is it... <laughs> well, well that, no, uh, that's, that, that's too deep for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that he was a, a great czar, a great politician, a good politician, and a politician with a conscience. And it, should, it could be a good lesson for our politician today, all around, all around the world, if they could have this kind of conscience. Of course, we don't wish them to die of remorse, because it would be a carnage. But, but, but this, I think, it should be the, the most important thing to remember. Julia, you have anything you want to add to that? I don't think we could. (laughs) Um, Andrew, um, can you conclude with just telling us a bit about what our audience can expect in terms of this sound world? These sounds of Mussorgsky are so completely different from 99% of the rest of the repertoire that they might hear. And I think it would be great if they could leave here knowing just a few things that they can listen for, whether in terms of instrumental color or, um, it, or structure, whatever, that, that would just say to them, this is Mussorgsky and this is what is so completely different from what you are used to. Well, um, I keep using this word severe, um, which, of course, doesn't make you immediately jump up and down saying, I can't wait to hear this. But, um, uh, but there's also a sort of depth in the sound that, that I think that one has to certainly search for um, because it, it, it gives this sense of, of, of the soul of, of, of Russia. And then that's, that's, it's, it's a supre- supremely Russian sound in, in a way that, Rimsky-Korsakov wasn't. I mean, you know, Rimsky was a wonderful composer and, um, um, and wrote some wonderful operas, some of which will be uh, interesting to hear, and we occasionally talk about them, but we haven't, uh, we haven't heard anything yet. Um, and uh, I think... And it's interesting, uh, the coronation scene is, is a case in point um, that uh, Rimsky kind of added more glitter to it. Um, but Mussorgsky, actually, the only place in the piano where, in the opera where he uses the piano, uh, is to to reinforce the, this kind of music, this bell music, 
Uh, and of course, <laughs> I'm always on the, I and the music staff say, we want to hear more piano, we want to hear more piano. Um, uh, but it's, it's just... So R- Rimsky's coronation music has... Um, it, it has... It's incredibly evocative, but it's not sort of... It doesn't glitter in the way that Rimsky does, but it's actually much, much more powerful. And that goes through the whole score. It's very simple in sometimes, but, but the way he alternates... And this is, this is marvellous. The way he alternates... He, he chooses with you know, what part of the orchestra to accompany certain lines, always, in my view kind of uh, sheds light on what the text is saying. So, I mean, and he does very often, he'll use the woodwind and then he'll use the, the horns and the trumpets and then he'll, and then he uses the trombones uh, by themselves uh, occasionally and then he'll use the strings. But, uh, and, and of course, there's every, every gradation in between, but, but the subtlety with which he chooses to illuminate the text is in a very, in a, in, in a very simple and direct way, and I think that's what people didn't understand when this, when he first uh, um, produced this piece, because there was no precedent for it, uh, and he was a real trailblazer in in the sense that he opened up a a new concept of sound. I think in terms of the way the orchestra was used, that that was original and and. And, and extremely moving. I, I, I mean, I think... And, and what it does is, is to totally to throw the focus also, especially on Boris himself. I think there's a... Um, you know, there, there's, no, there are no, there's no distraction. There's no extraneous kind of decoration about it. And I think that the, the, direct, the directness with which it focuses on, on emotion and the psychology of, 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 of Boris and, and indeed of the other characters is, um, is what's really remarkable. Thank you very much. All three of you, thank you so much. We're all looking forward to Boris. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org. <laughs>